You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. The Institute on Local Self Reliance has done amazing work, and it's one of the organizations that I follow closely and that I think is really well aligned with all the stuff that we're trying to do here at Strong Towns. I mean, the very name, Local Self Reliance. They have a new report out called the Dollar Store Invasion, and one of the authors of that report is Stacy Mitchell. She's the co-executive director of the Institute of Local Self-Reliance. She's been on the podcast before. You probably heard her. Stacy. welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. It's so great to be here. I am a huge fan of Strong Towns and always so happy to have a chance to talk with you and the whole Strong Towns network. Well, likewise, the work that you do is, is absolutely astounding and very vital. This part of the dollar store conversation is really an interesting one. I think in terms of setting the scene, maybe we can just talk about how the dollar stores came into existence and how they have become so dominant. And and let me read a brief bit from the beginning of your report. You said in, in 2021, so very recently, half of the new stores that opened in the US were chain dollar stores. That is an astounding stat. You then have this one, dollar store and dollar tree, which is a part of the family dollar system. They together operate more than 34,000 stores. That is more than McDonald's, Starbucks, Target, and Walmart combined. We think of all of those as being ubiquitous in and of themselves. Add them together, that's how many dollar stores we have more than that. How did this happen? How did this come about? It is really astonishing. There are two chains, you know, so there's Dollar General and then there's Dollar Tree, which owns Family Dollar. So there are three brands, two chains. They were around prior to the financial crisis. But after the financial crisis, it was like they got on steroids and they just started exploding all over the place. For the young folks, we're talking 2008, right? That that financial crisis. Right, exactly. (laughs) So yeah, right around 2010, 2011, they really start to take off. And, you know, there's a couple of things that are, are sort of worth pointing out. One is that these two chains they plan to open a lot more stores. They say that they see opportunities for 16,000 more locations. And just to kind of like put that in context, because I run into a lot of people who say, oh, well, yeah, we've already got dollar stores, like the problem's already here. And I think people really need to reckon with how many more they want to build. And there's differences across states. And so in Minnesota, for example, there are about $360 store chains right now. If they just built as many stores per capita as they currently have in Georgia, they would add over 500 new dollar stores to the state of Minnesota. And if they then build 300 new stores in every state, which they say they can do, now we're talking about quadrupling the number of dollar stores in Minnesota. So just to give a sense of like, there are a ton of these stores, but there are a lot more in the pipeline. And that's what we really had to keep an eye on. It's amazing to me because I live in a smaller town. I live in a city of about 14,000. We have four of them. There's a little like town next to us that is actually just part of unincorporated territory. It was where uh, 
center of a section was before and could have had a school and could have had all that, but the train went here instead of there. So now it's just a collection of, there's a couple bars and like some self-storage. I went by there the other day. I haven't been up there for a while. They have a dollar store. It is astounding to me that not every small town, but almost every small town now in Minnesota that has any kind of agglomeration of you know more than a thousand people is being served by a dollar store. If we went back, I mean, I'm not that old, but if we went back 20 years, 25 years, these places all had small grocery stores. They weren't great places necessarily. They were there, they existed. Even in small towns where we used to see the old family that would have the grocery store and then try to make ends meet some other way, they're completely gone. And now we have dollar stores everywhere. What kind of need is this filling? And maybe let's let's take that positive part of it. Like, obviously there's a demand, like, why are they there? And then I'd like to try to back out of like, what would be the alternative to this in a way? The people in all these places are saying like, this is great. We need this, right? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, on the one hand, dollar stores sometimes fill a legitimate need where there is an absence of retail. And to some degree, dollar stores, I think we can understand as a byproduct of the dominance of Walmart. You know, that Walmart spread across the land and opened these giant super centers in suburbs and in relatively large towns. And then in the process, wiped out a lot of retail in smaller communities and in urban neighborhoods and so on, and left these gaps. To some degree, dollar stores have filled those gaps. But I also just want to like step back from the idea that we have a lot of these stores because of demand. Like I actually think that's a myth. Strong Towns is so good at busting myths. And I think that there are a lot of myths about, about the dollar chains. So one of the things that we have seen over and over and over again is yes, you can definitely find examples where there was really a, an absence of retail and people will say, you know, a dollar chain is better than nothing in terms of having some level of retail. That does happen, but there are far more examples of dollar chains coming in, building a store across the street from a good local grocery store and driving that store out of business. And people look at that and they say, well, the dollar store won because they obviously they must be more popular. You know, that's what people chose. They voted with their dollars. They chose the dollar store. So we went out and we collected as many examples as we could find of that having happened in a community. And then we, we looked at what the grocery store owner said about lost business. And consistently across all these communities, the grocery store owner said, you know, Dollar General came in across the street from me and my sales went down somewhere between 15 and 30%. That was always the answer. And if you step back from that and you think about it for a minute, that means people in that community were still spending 70 to 85% of their grocery dollar at the grocery store. It was by far the most popular choice about where to shop. But Dollar General can skim off just enough sales and just enough sales of profitable items to drive that grocery store out of business. And so I just want to like question whether you know, we have a habit in this country of assuming what we see in the world is a result of like neutral market forces. I don't think that's the case here. I think there are other things going on. It's very clear that the product offering at a dollar store is going to be different than that of a grocery store too. 
I know a little bit about corner grocery store economics. I know enough to know that there are high margin and low margin products. And that part of, if we want to say the service you're offering to the community is going to rely on having a number of those low margin products that get people in the door and then the high margin products that allow you to kind of stay there in a way. So you you might not make much on milk, you might not make much on bread, but you might have a a snack offering or you might have something else that that gives you a little bit higher margin that allows you to stick around. The dollar store model seems like if we just look at that last I want to zoom out at some point, but look at that last bit of in the boxing ring competition in the quote marketplace. It seems like the dollar store strategy is just to skim that high margin stuff out of their competitor and essentially deny the market the rest of the the low margin stuff that may exist. Is that a fair assessment? That's exactly right. You know, all this stuff on the outer edges of a grocery store, you know, the fresh produce, the fresh meat, the fresh dairy, that's all tricky to make money on because it's perishable. So you, if you don't sell it, you end up having to throw it out. And so it's hard to do well and to, you know, keep your head above water on those items where, you know, as a grocery store, what stabilizes you, what covers your overhead or what they refer to as the center aisle stales. It's all that packaged food in the middle of the store. It's stable. You can make a reliable margin on it and you do that. And that's what covers your ability to offer fresh food. Dollar Chain comes in, they only sell a very limited selection of packaged and processed foods. They don't bother with much in the way of produce. A few of them have have a little bit. And so they're taking the stuff that covers your overhead. And so when they skim that 15% off of your sales or they take 20% of your business, they're taking the stuff that's most important in terms of your ability to actually cover cost and, and putting you in the red. You know, when you said that, like they lose 15 to 30% of their sales. There's a lot of people who operate businesses who would say, well, you know, yeah, you've got a competitor now, you're going to lose 15, 30% of your sales. You can overcome that. But it's actually often 100% or more of the profit, right? Yeah, lost. I mean, a, a grocery store makes like a 1% profit. I mean, you, you do a lot of volume, make very slim profit because it's food and, pe- you know, it's just the nature of that business. And you take and that profit, as I said, you know, comes from a fairly small set of your of your items. If Dollar General takes those away from you, now you're operating in the red. And, you know, the other dynamic and this, you know, I think gets into there are a number of different dynamics here that effectively tilt the playing field in favor of Dollar General or Family Dollar. You know, another one is that the dollar chains can lose money, like any chain. They can open a new store and they can lose money at that new store for a year, two years, whatever it takes. They're going to make it up on the rest of their outlets. But the kinds of grocers that typically serve the places that are being overrun by dollar stores, which are rural areas and black and brown neighborhoods and cities, those are places that are disproportionately served by independent locally owned grocery stores and by like small, like family owned chains, you know, where you might have a chain of like 10 or 12 stores across a bunch of small towns in a state. Those are businesses, they got to pay their bills at the end of the month. They don't have Wall Street backing, so they can't match you in, in losing money. And the dollar stores, you know, this is true with Walmart and all the big chains, they can lose money at that location. And then once you close, well, maybe prices go up, you know, and they have the ability to do that. And this is part of how, you know, I think 
we've really got to start to recognize some of the true dynamics of how retail works. Because if we just go with this sort of blind assumption that the market delivers what people want, we're really missing the fact that that's not the case. And if we don't make better choices in terms of policy, we're going to get outcomes that actually no one wants. I want to go back in time and walk people through how we got here. You used an amazing analogy to me about just the denuded landscape. I want to set that up for people because I feel like there is this, you know, there is a local economic ecosystem that used to exist in places that did get wiped out. And and in that sense, dollar store feels more like an invasive species than a than a market response. Let me give you a little story. There's a city about 40 minutes outside of the regional center that I live in. We have the Walmart and the Super Walmart and the Target that's been expanded and the Costco and all that. That's here. This place is, you know, 35, 40 minutes away. And I did city planning for work for them about two decades ago. When I was there, the only thing in that city was a gas station, a realtor's store, and like a tourist knickknack place. But I was sitting around with some of the the older people, people 30, 40, 50 years older than me at the time. And we were talking about just the businesses in the city. And they said, yeah, we used to have a dry cleaner. And I'm like, what? A dry cleaner? This is a town today of 750 people. Oh yeah, yeah. We had dry cleaner. We had a florist and they started to list all these places. This was a small town. And after they listed these things, I'm like half the people in the city had to be working (laughs) in these businesses that were city, basically service-oriented businesses in the city. They had hardware stores, they had multiple grocery stores, they had a butcher, they they had all this stuff. Where did all that stuff go? Why isn't that there anymore? Where did all that stuff go? Well, that's a great story and really does illustrate how much we've lost. There are multiple reasons why all that went away. One of the biggest answers has to do with the rise of big box retailers and their relationships to roads and large roads. So it used to be that proximity mattered in retail. And we also had a, you know, it's worth saying we had a society where we encourage people to go to start businesses. Like it was something that growing up decades ago, growing up, you would think about, oh, well, when I grow up, maybe I'll be a doctor or I'll do this or I'll do that. Maybe I'll, I'll own a hardware store. That's not on people's, hasn't been on people's minds or radar as something they could do for a long, long time. So, you know, we had a bunch of policies in place through much of the 20th century where we checked the power of big retailers. We had, in some cases, smarter land use and road policy, not always, but, and then, you know, starting sort of around the 70s, 80s, we began to let go of a lot of that. We got rid of the antitrust laws that kept a level playing field, or we didn't get rid of them, we stopped enforcing them, I should say. And you had companies that, like Walmart, that came along and really took advantage of those things. And Walmart came along and built these enormous super centers, and a lot of them, often in fairly rural regions, those stores have a kind of gravitational pull. And that's especially true when you combine them with big high-speed road networks. Because suddenly people are now in their cars, commuting someplace for work, and the pull of going to a Home Depot or going to a Walmart is pretty great out there on that sort of highway network you know, as opposed to a more community oriented life and approach to planning where walking to to the corner 
to go to to a local hardware store heading downtown was the you know the thing that that you tended to default to. So Walmart, I mean just to to play out what happened, you know, as Walmart grew massively with supercenters, you know, and became the most dominant grocer in the country, you know, Walmart captures one out of every 4 dollars we spend on groceries. They opened up stores in relatively large towns and in the suburbs. So to, to just take an example like Tulsa, Oklahoma. You know, Walmart came in and built in the 1990s and 2000s lots and lots of stores that kind of ring the city in the suburbs and in the outer edges of Tulsa. And those stores exert this gravitational pull where they basically killed off a lot of the healthy retail ecology, like not only locally owned grocery stores, but all kinds of small local businesses that had been in the neighborhoods and throughout the city. And they left a lot of those landscapes just devoid. You know, it was like they just sort of erased much of that ecology. And into that denuded landscape, the dollar chains just unrolled like an invasive species. It was like Walmart kind of opened the way, like destroyed all the ecology for them and left these big gaps in the landscape that the dollar stores invaded into. Because Walmart ultimately, in the end of the day, they know they can scoop up all those grocery dollars without actually locating stores. And they don't really want to locate stores in, say, low-income neighborhoods or in very small towns. They're happy to be you know, down the road a ways where they can still dominate and run that small town's businesses out. I was in Memphis, Tennessee, and I'm pretty sure it was Target. It might have been Walmart. We were at the Target that had been closed. And you could see, like in the distance, the target that had been opened to replace the one that had been closed. There's a cycle that we see in traditional neighborhoods where that ecology of corner stores and you know neighborhood centers and all that was was wiped out. South Memphis is a really good example of this. It's a very hard neighborhood, very struggling neighborhood. But if you get into it, there's all kinds of existing businesses that 20, 30 years ago, 40 years ago would have been there and were a real part of that stepping stone of the neighborhood, right? Like I'm going to be the local realtor. I'm going to be like part of the cornerstone bedrock of the finance of this neighborhood. And those places were wiped out when that target, that Walmart opened up next door. But that denuding of that landscape kind of induces target then to, in a sense, move on it feels a lot like slash and burn agriculture in a way. Yeah. Is that a fair analogy? Absolutely. You build a monocrop. I mean, the other angle on this is that, you know, this sort of monocrops are risky. You're dependent now on Target being in your community. Well, what if they up and decide to close a store? And we've seen Walmart, in fact, do this all over the country where, you know, they had a whole bunch of sort of small format stores that they just up and closed and left all these small communities they'd come into, open these stores, run everybody else out of business. And then Walmart's like, you know, this isn't that profitable and we're going to get out of here, you know. And it's very similar. You know, I think the whole ecology metaphor is is the right one because it's, you know, nature knows that diversity is, you know, is the key to resilience in a diverse ecosystem, you'll see all these different species that fill all the different niches. And what we have instead got are, you know, these dominant species like Walmart that exerts this huge influence on the whole landscape, but in fact, doesn't fill all the niches that, you know, like Walmart is a big reason we have food deserts. Those two things really go hand in hand. 
And so, you know, you have this monocrop and then now you're dependent on Walmart and now you're being overrun by dollar chains because, you know, because this ecosystem has been so weakened that it doesn't really have any defenses anymore. And that's the situation that we now find ourselves in. There's two subsidies that seem to be working invisibly often for people, the consumers of this stuff, people who show up at Walmart and, and who show up at the dollar stores and, and will say things like, this is a market choice or this is happening in the market. Can we dig a little bit deeper into the one you already mentioned, which is the Wall Street subsidy? It's a very strange thing that we would find ourselves in an age when companies would lose money for decades and that somehow that would be good for investors or a good investment strategy or a strategy, you know, in a zero interest rate environment or what have you that that could linger on for a long time. Can you talk a little bit about that Wall Street subsidy and how we've kind of rewarded the scaling of big players in our system? That's right. You know, we have all these examples now where the company's stock price will soar because they're aggressively taking market share. It doesn't matter if what they're doing is, you know, whether it's a quality product or service, whether they're actually making a margin, a profit on it, they are rewarded heavily by the stock market simply for massive growth and market share. You know, Amazon is, is maybe the most famous example of this because, you know, Amazon lost billions and billions of dollars for years. I mean, they just lost so much money and their stock price absolutely soared. And, you know, and of course, it's not just that your stock price, that now you have access to debt, capital, like all this stuff to fund your expansion as a result of your stock valuation, what investors think you're going to do in the future. And they, you know, they lost all that money in order to absolutely take over first the book sector and then, you know, a whole bunch of other industries as well. But when your stock price goes up, you can issue new shares at this much higher price and then have all this cash that you can go out and, and continue to accelerate this. So it it does provide this liquidity for them. And then, yes, it is much easier for them to borrow at very, very low rates competitively than it is for the, the local entrepreneur to go to their local bank and try to get a loan, right? That's absolutely right. We've basically taken like our collective capital as it were because you know we're we're all sort of part of this inadvertently through like if you have a retirement, you know, 401k, that type of thing. I mean, you know, obviously wealthy people are much more a part of this, but nevertheless, you know, we have taken our collective capital and channeled it in this particular direction. We've we've channeled, you know, for example, it in the direction of Dollar General having tons of cash to open thousands of new stores. Meanwhile, you have local entrepreneurs who are smart and have a great plan to build a business in a community who, for the life of them, cannot get a bank loan because we have just starved the other part of our capital system, eliminated all of these community banks, and made it really impossible for you know the kinds of businesses that we really should want to grow to be able to do that. We see... Dollar General, we see these dollars, we see Walmart, we see all these places. When they're in the expansion phase, even when they're losing money, their stock price goes up and it kind of accelerates their ability to expand. This is the part that I find the most insidious. You started this by saying, and I can't remember what the number was, 16,000 new dollar stores. Just making that announcement will actually almost make it like a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? 
Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, this is exactly what Wall Street wants to see. It's predatory. These retailers are, are destroying a lot of the productive capacity of our economy. Like they are eliminating businesses that are much more substantial, provide a lot more overall value, provide more for the local economy, but they are eliminating them and replacing them with these, you know, this low value retail option that is largely extractive, doesn't generate much for the community and is, you know, sort of here today and gone tomorrow in terms of its, you know, stability. But for Wall Street, that is a way to make short term gains and money. And, you know, this just a phenomenal disconnect that we have between how our capital system works and any sort of objective measure of productive investment. Like those two things are completely different in our country. It's one of the biggest problems that I think we face in, in, in trying to fix some of the challenges that communities have. I know you like we do, avoid the, the most partisan of politics. So let, let me ask you this question with that premise. It does feel to me a lot like the experience of South Memphis, which is a black neighborhood in Memphis, where you would, I think in prior generations, look to these kind of like pillars of the neighborhood as the, the local business owners, the local commerce, the people who would support a kid trying to get a pair of shoes to join a school sport or, you know, sponsor the band or the softball team. That experience of having that be stripped out of a neighborhood feels very similar to an experience you would get in a Dayton, Ohio or a central Minnesota, which is very Trump country in a lot of ways, especially north of me, where these old mining communities had these ecosystems of, of businesses that have now been stripped out culturally what has this done to our places? And and I think how has that distorted even sometimes the way we think about ourselves or, or talk about ourselves? There's a certain, I guess, layer of desperation that feels very exploitable to me because of kind of the effects of this system is maybe what I'm getting at. There is a a profound sense of despair. It is rooted in a sense of powerlessness. That's my feeling anyway that all around the country in all different kinds of communities, people feel like me and my neighbors have no real control over the fate of the places that we live, the places that we, that we love, that our lives and the futures of our communities are really controlled largely by forces, large corporations, forces that are outside of our reach, and that the whole system is rigged in favor of the powerful that government doesn't actually work for ordinary people because you have large corporations and to some extent wealthy people pulling the strings, writing the rules, setting the terms so that they feel advantaged. When you feel this sense of powerlessness, you know that is incredibly poisonous in a democracy. When you look at government and you think, you know, there, there's a reason that people don't have faith in government. You know, because what Congress does in a given year is more shaped by the priorities of corporate executives than it is by ordinary people, whether you're conservative or liberal. And that, it really worries me. And, you know, it's so much of it is rooted in corporate power. It's astonishing to find ourselves in a time when the future of American democracy is actually in doubt. And 
when I think about how do we address that, to me, it, it comes back to a number of things, but it's getting corporate power under control is really a crucial part of that. And that means multiple things. It means having a government that governments, you know, local, state, and federal that are responsive to people. It means breaking up and pushing back and downsizing the power of corporations. And it means building up local businesses and enterprises and organizations and institutions at the local level that people have control over so that we are again, you know, going back to that, the picture of that community near, near you that you painted from, from years ago, you know, that's a community where Lots of local people have a decision-making role in the community. They run a business. They're part of the civic life of the community. That's the building blocks of democracy is at the local level. You know, we used to know this, but we lost touch with it. And it, it explains a lot of, of the, the problem that we're in. The one thing I, I want to say just, you know, because you started to, I think, maybe touch on this a little bit, is we've been really noticing a lot at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance how often the kinds of problems that we're researching are most pronounced in two kinds of communities, rural communities and in black and brown urban neighborhoods. And that's true with food deserts and with the dollar chains over overrunning places. They target particular communities and we know that they target black neighborhoods and we know that they, they target very small towns. And those are the places where we've got not only food deserts, but banking deserts, hospital deserts, pharmacy deserts, you know, all of these broadband deserts, you know, all of these missing essential services. And it's interesting because it's, it's a mix of blue and red places. And it seems to me there's something incredibly powerful about recognizing those shared commonalities and having a conversation about, well, how do we begin to, to, change this. And that's some of what we've been doing with the dollar store work. So my colleague, Kennedy Smith, you know, has been working with community leaders, grassroots folks, citizens all across the country. There have now been over 70 places that have blocked dollar stores, more than 50 that have passed laws limiting the expansion of dollar stores. And many of those places are also working to develop local grocery stores and other kinds of businesses. You know, it's a really interesting mix of places and it's very interesting to bring all those folks together for a conversation about, about what is happening. Well, it feels to me like those are the the marketing brochure places, the places that we point to as being the ones we are serving, but the policies don't often align with that, right? And and I think this is the this is where your work and and our work I think intersect so well because the idea of of self reliance is the, the very basis of what you're doing, and it was the initial inquiry into you know a lot of the work that we're doing too. Why? Why are we building things that we can't afford to sustain? What What is going on here? What are the forces? Let's talk a little bit about what local governments can do. But I, I think maybe as a bridge to that, I mentioned two subsidies. There's the Wall Street subsidy. There's also this kind of set of government subsidies that we put in place that really open the door for dollar stores while at the same time kind of putting a ceiling on that local ecosystem can you talk a little bit about maybe the way local governments in particular shoot themselves in the foot when it comes to dollar stores? I, mean, I see crazy things like them giving tax abatements and tax subsidies and waiving sewer and water fees. And I'm like, why? Like, what are you, why? What are we doing? 
there are a bunch of subsidies that tax, you know, all the different kinds of tax breaks and incentives and all that sort of stuff that local governments out there have have been giving to the dollar chains. And you're at a real loss to explain why that makes any sense at all, because we know you open a dollar store, you get fewer jobs because you eliminate more. I mean, there's there's hardly any tax revenue. These are cheap buildings like I mean, the list goes on and on. There is absolutely no reason to be giving these guys subsidies. Then there are all the kind of hidden subsidies, I guess we could say. And, you know, you know more about this stuff than than anyone. You know, the way that land use and, and property taxes work, where, you know, you got a dollar general out on the outskirts of town paying a much, much lower rate per square foot for property tax than you do a business in the town center is paying, even though that business in the town center is actually causing much Costing less. Where, less. Costing yeah. you way less for wear and tear yeah. on roads and police and all the other services. So, you know, that doesn't make any sense at all. You know, so our whole land use system really, you know, favors Walmart, favors Dollar General in a lot of ways. Local governments have, you know, a pivotal role to play here. They have a lot of power in terms of zoning. You can simply prohibit or limit the ability of, of dollar stores to open. And you can also put in place things that make it easier for uh, locally owned businesses to open, you know, grocery stores in particular. But, you know, as, as, as my colleague Kennedy reminds me, um, you know, I tend to focus on grocery stores because it's a, it's a great way to help people see this story of what's happening. But the dollar chains, of course, are killing off lots of other kinds of local businesses. And so this, you know, this isn't just about grocery. Talk about those steps to prohibit and limit. Because I think a lot of times it takes speaking them for people to think them possible. There's a whole toolbox of things that cities can do. You know, we often have that in a separate compartment that we open in case of emergency or, or won't touch. I feel like it's time to speak some of those things. So what would be some of the the things? Yeah. So one of the most common things that communities have done is adopt what, what are known as dispersal ordinances. These are measures that say uh, a new dollar store can't open if it's within two miles, say, of an existing dollar store. That's a way of saying, look, you know, having one in our town is okay, or in our neighborhood, having a couple is okay. But beyond that, no more, because we know that these stores use a kind of blanket strategy. You can also simply ban them. There's one community that we know of, Stonecrest, Georgia, that has just simply banned dollar stores. There's a, a legal definition that they have of, you know, sort of small format. I forget exactly how it's worded. Um, stores, they said, we're not going to have that type of use in our community. That's not not what we want. So that's an option as well. You can certainly think about things like it's important to go back to your comprehensive plan. You know, does your comprehensive plan really lay out the kind of vision that you want for your community? You can look at things like not zoning land on the outskirts of town or along all the the major roads coming in and out don't zone it for retail like those are maybe not places to have retail that it's pretty simple keep your retail in your neighborhood business districts in your downtown and the places where you actually want it to go so there's a rich toolbox out there and I should say that we, you know, alongside the report that you mentioned that we uh, published a month or so ago, the dollar store invasion, we published a couple of resource guides alongside that. And so we published a strategy guide if you're a community worried about dollar stores or facing a dollar store proposal. That's a step-by-step guide to blocking a particular proposal. And more importantly, we urge you to get ahead of it, you know, pass the laws now 
put the measures in place now because, as I said at the top, there are a lot more of these stores coming. And you can certainly fight them off, and lots of communities have done that and won. But rather than get into that fight in the first place, better to change your laws now so that you're protected. Let's get proactive then. There's a denuded landscape that this invasive species has now come in and tried to exploit because it's just a wide open area. If we can keep them out, how do we cultivate a replacement for that? Because in a food desert, you need food. In a pharmacy desert, you you need pharmacies. How do we start to reestablish a real economic ecosystem in places that have been denuded like this? You know, it's going to take a few different things. And I will, you know, I will point out that there are success stories that are happening. So we first got involved in this issue in 2018, working with a city councilor who, Vanessa Hall Harper, who represents North Tulsa, the northern part of, of Tulsa, which is, you know, is the community that was victimized by that horrible race riot in the, as they say, in the 1920s, hundreds of people killed, predominantly black neighborhood. It was known as Black Wall Street, and all of those businesses were burned and destroyed back in the 20s. So this is that same community and has a lot of dollar stores and hasn't had a grocery store in 14 years. Vanessa Hall Harper, we worked with her, she, she designed a dispersal ordinance and miraculously through a lot of work, managed to get it passed through City Hall and limited more dollar stores from coming in and then worked very hard. I think it was actually in 2021, a new full service locally owned fantastic grocery store opened in that neighborhood called Oasis Fresh Market. And we did a a great interview on our podcast with the owner, uh, Aaron Johnson. Really fabulous story. And it took a lot of work by the community to, you know, figure out, you know, how to ease the development of this supermarket through, you know, how to find the right kind of financing, you know, given that this is a local owner who doesn't have access to all that Wall Street capital that we were talking about before. So it did take a lot of work. We've also seen in Birmingham, another place that a few years ago, limited dollar stores, neighborhood that hadn't had a grocery store in a long time. Now uh, just had a new grocery store open this year, part of a small kind of family owned chain, I believe, if, if, if I have that right. So it can happen. The kinds of things that we think are most important to get right policy-wise, I think the two biggest ones at the federal level, and this is important to bring in, one is that we haven't enforced important parts of our antitrust laws in a long time. And we have a law in the books that is that we stopped enforcing in the 1980s, and it is probably the single most significant reason that Walmart exploded and took over the economy. It's a major reason that the dollar chains have grown. It's a major reason for the growth of big retail chains in general. That's a law that was passed in the 1930s. And it said, if you're a big retailer, you can't use your market power as a major buyer of goods to pressure suppliers into giving you a discount while raising prices to your smaller competitors. So basically, like Walmart, you can get a legitimate volume discount because you're buying in bulk, but you can't just say, hey, General Mills, PepsiCo, you're going to give me way better pricing than my smaller competitors. And hey, I'm 20% of your business. So if you don't do what I want, you're going to be screwed. Like every supplier in that position is like, okay, Walmart wants it. We got to give it to them. And if we are then losing money on Walmart, well, we'll just make it up by charging the the independent businesses more. That's what's been going on for 40 years. And the dollar chains do it too. In fact, in the industry, it's often referred to as the dollar channel. So the dollar channel gets all these special 
prices, special package sizes, and all of this stuff from suppliers that an independent grocer, even if they bought in the same volume, cannot get. Just that is off limits to them. And the result is that they're often paying more for goods than Dollar General is selling it on their shelves. That's, you know, really works against competition. And there is now a growing discussion, and we're really trying to push this for reviving enforcement of that law. We stopped enforcing it in the 80s. It's been 40 years. And we need to bring it back. We need to say it's a level playing field, that if the independent grocer, they got to have access to the, to, to the same prices to be able to really compete. Remind me of the name of that law. You told it to me once before, and I can't remember. It's called the Robinson-Patman Act. That's right. Uh, yep. yep. Robinson-Patman Act. It was set aside on this theory that, you know, uh, big retailers being able to squeeze suppliers would benefit f- consumers. And they were like, well, screw it. We don't care about the local businesses. So let's, you know, let's just let the big retailers do this and it'll be great for consumers. Well, lo and behold, it's been exactly the opposite, you know, all these years later, because what happened when they stopped enforcing it is you had obviously these big retail chains amassed a lot of power. And then the suppliers, you know, the Procter and Gambles of the world, they merged you know, to try to beef up because they were like, hey, Walmart's huge. We got to be bigger too, right? You know, to try to they, push they back. They have to compete just on volume. Right. And right. and we don't, you know, we, we don't want to get killed at the negotiating table. So we got to bulk up too. So now you have so much consolidation among these suppliers that they don't have enough competition that, you know, as we've been seeing over the last couple of years, they've just jacked up grocery prices, made record profits. And, you know, you're shopping in the store, you don't have any options left because it's all, you know, all those brands that you see on the supermarket shelves, they're owned by just a handful of conglomerates. So however you measure the loss of the failure to enforce this law, whether you're looking at independent businesses or what's happening at, you know, on main streets, or you're looking at what is happening to consumers, any way you cut it, this has been a total mistake to stop enforcing it. So now it, it's the Federal Trade Commission that's in charge of, of enforcing this law. And we've got the new set of commissioners that have, have come in in the last few years have taken a fresh look and are now saying, hey, you know, actually, maybe we need to start enforcing that again. And I think that that would be a huge change for all of the kinds of issues, you know, that we're working on around, around retail. And then just quickly, I would I would name, you know, the, the banking system that we talked about before. We need to shift to give real capital to people who want to start businesses in communities that need them. The banking system we could do hours on. I feel like yeah. it, it is. I, I've called it just like a shifting of gravity. Like it, 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 you get used to it at a certain point because it's just the way things are. But it's so omnipresent and it has really shifted everything. It's easier to get twenty million dollars than it is to get twenty thousand dollars out of the banking system. But only if you can operate at that at that scale. It's easier for Dollar General to get twenty million than it is for the the person trying to start the corner store to get 20,000. And that seems backward, I think, to most people, but that is the system we've created, right? That's right. That's right. And also it's disconnected. It doesn't really have anything to do with investment in productive capacity. If you wanted to actually measure what are we getting for the 20,000 and what are we getting for the 20 million in terms of the you know it's sort of the substance of the economy its capacity to produce value it doesn't make any sense on in that way either right right i've started the last couple of years to refer to sensitivity what what are systems sensitive to 
And our financial system is not sensitive to productivity. It's not sensitive to even return on capital. Um, it really is sensitive to other things like flow and like stock prices and very short-term metrics that really have nothing to do with building productive economies. We see this in the housing sector. We see this in the transportation sector. We see this in lots of places. And I think one of the reasons I struggled so long to try to figure out or try to understand what was going on is that my base assumption was people who are investing millions of dollars care about productivity. They care about right. uh, like, and, and to, to actually like be pounding my head going like this project doesn't make sense. And then to re recognize ultimately that, no, it's really about flow. And it's really about, I mean, when you buy a house, you assume that like the transaction is you buying a house. And it really is a very strange thing to come to the realization that it's you creating a piece of mortgage paper and that the mortgage paper and the loan tied to that is actually the product that has value in today's marketplace. It's a very weird, you know, so you're buying the house is immaterial. It's like part of the ingredients that go into creating the thing that has value. Coincidental to the, to the thing. Right. It's right. like, wow. I just wanted to add one quick thing on that. But the financial system is the way I started to to think about it is what they're really interested in is gambling. You know, it's it's speculative. It's like what what can we do to like create things that we can kind of gamble on and make bets and you know, huge upside without without actually investing anything. So it's like the more towards just making bets and and making money that way. Let me give that some nuance because I, I think we're on the same page. But if you like take a casino, one of the kind of brilliant things of a casino, and I'm putting brilliant in air quotes, is that it has a way to steal everybody's money, right? Like it has it has five cent slots and it has the high roller tables. And in a casino, the high roller table is not like a better game or a more profitable game. It's probably actually a less profitable game, but the high roller table is like the advertisement that gets the people doing the nickel and dimes in the door gambling. Our system, not to say that everybody can't open a, a, an account and gamble themselves, but if you do that, you're just the sucker. Like the people who are actually gambling the people who are part of this casino, it's like only the high rollers at the high roller table where like the game is almost kind of rigged. They're almost the house in this casino, right? If it functioned like a casino, I actually would have less problems with it because it would be a more distributed model. Right. I wasn't suggesting that it functions like a casino in the sense that it's a place that people can go and, and, and gamble with their own money, but more that the calculus that's made by the the folks who control where capital flows is not it's not an investment calculus it's not like well if i put this capital here and and invest in this equipment and this thing and this this set of ideas and the set of people you know they're going to generate value and i'm going to get a return from that value that's not what's going on it's more like how can i use this to buy a piece of paper uh, you know which maybe abstractly represents a mortgage and then you know bet on the, the future upside. of that right yeah. exactly experience upside abstracted from the system i mean this is why just this week, it came out that like core inflation is higher, but overall inflation is lower. Unemployment is down. 
And the stock market like reacts negatively to good news because they actually would like interest rates to go back down and have more, you know, lower borrowing costs and more liquidity in the system. You're responding to gambling metrics as opposed to productivity metrics, right? Exactly. And and like fundamentally what we've built is a financial system that misaligns, misaligns. where the the yeah, where the interests of the people who control the capital is actually opposite the interests of the people who need the capital. Like we've, it's, you know, the financial crisis, we saw all these people like lost all their homes, you know, the bets that they're making are not in, in a good financial system. The bankers, if you will, make money when their borrowers succeed. We have a financial system where the bankers have set it up. They often make money, you know, it doesn't really matter if the borrowers succeed or fail. Right. Yeah, it's abstraction. They make money off of the the transactions going on. So the more gambling there is, the more the house takes, right? The more they're able to. That is the part that I feel like you and I have both wrestled with because it is the water we swim in today. And the question that I've always struggled with is how do we emerge some kind of local self-reliance, local resilience? economic ecosystems that are locally responsive out of this broader flow that is really designed to be the exact opposite. And it's it's very hard. It's very, very hard. I almost feel like the task we have is to protect local communities from the insanity around it. But when you protect them too much in the housing market, I'll often say, well, you know, we should have locally responsive housing markets. Aaron goes, yay, I want that. And I'm like, well, yeah, that would mean that your house is worth half as much as it is today (laughs) because it responds to the local market. Like, oh, no, 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 I don't want that. So there is this kind of seductiveness of the efficiency narrative. Dollar stores, it's that way because it's efficient and they've got efficient allocation of capital and, you know, low prices and it's great for consumers. And all of those things can be true in a narrow range while the broader ecosystem is being denuded and destroyed. And I, I feel like that's that's the narrative that your report tells. That's the narrative that I hear from you. And to me, that's the thing that I feel like people need to be tuned into, right? That's right. And for us, a, a really key part of the strategy moving forward is, is to encourage communities, as you said, to protect themselves. Like there is a lot of authority and tools that people have at the local level to do that. But it is also crucial, especially for people who are engaged in that work locally, to put some of their time into the federal stuff. You know, if we can reinvigorate enforcement of the Robinson Patman Act, if we can address some of the problems in our system, it is going to make a lot of the local efforts that we're all engaged in right now, they're uphill fights. We are working against gravity. And if we could shift some or all of those larger structures, it would they would become downhill fights, if you will. We would be working with gravity to rebuild local businesses, to rebuild that ecology. And I worry that if we only do the local stuff, as absolutely pivotal as that is, and it's in our backyard and it's within our reach, and yes, 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 we should do it. But we also need to spend some percentage of our energy pushing for these federal changes in order to succeed. 
That is Stacy Mitchell. She's with the Institute of Local Self-Reliance. Stacy, I know people can follow your work at ilsr.org. You all have a, a session coming up here on this very report. I think it's May 23rd. If people want to get registered for that, if they want to follow your work, how would people get in touch with you? Is it through the website? Is that the best place? Yeah, it's the best place. The event we have coming up is a virtual event on May 23rd. If you go to the homepage, you'll see it right there. It's called Fixing the Food Gap. Really great lineup of speakers. So definitely check that out. And you can also go to our staff page, find my email address, find Kennedy Smith's email address. If you're dealing with a dollar store issue in your community, she'd love to help you figure that out. So doing some of the most important work today in this whole country. So thank you for taking the time, Stacey. Thanks for all that that you do and all that your team does. It's really inspiring. And I encourage people to go check it out. Thanks, Chuck. I, 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 again, just really love Strong Towns and am so appreciative of all that you do and just uh, really appreciate the, the chance to talk with you today. All right. Thanks, friend. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Take care, everybody. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh, Magnet City! I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.